I'd like you to keep your Bibles open to Luke, the seventh chapter, which was just read this morning, as we'll be looking at it in some detail this morning. Years ago, uh, when I was uh, first pastoring in Wheaton, there was a man in my congregation by the name of Joseph Bailey. And Joe Bailey and his wife, Mary Lou, were active in the congregation and uh, were like parents to us. Uh, considerably older, uh, with a large family, who had uh, lived through a lot of difficulties in life. Uh, they had six children, but at that time, three of them had gone to be with the Lord. One at 18 months from uh, cystic fibrosis, another at five years, another at 18 years, and then while we knew Joe and Mary Lou, another at 37 years. And so they, they had known a lot of pain. And he wrote a book called A View from a Hearse. And Joe Bailey when he writes about the death of a child, knows what he's talking about. And here's what Joe says. Of all deaths, that of a child is most unnatural and hardest to bear. In Carl Jung's words, it is a period placed before the end of a sentence, sometimes when the sentence has hardly begun, adds Joe Bailey. We expect the old to die. The separation is always difficult, but it's no surprise. But a child, the youth, life lies ahead with its beauty, its wonder, its potential. Death is a cruel thief when it strikes down the young. The suffering that usually precedes death is another reason a childhood death is so hard for parents to bear. Children were made for fun and for laughter and for sunshine, not for pain. And they have a child's heightened consciousness rather than the ability to cope with suffering that comes with maturity. In a way that is different from any other human relationship, a child is bone of his parents' bone, flesh of their flesh. When a child dies, Part of the parents is buried. And Joe goes on for there, from there. But not from my experience, but from others' experience as a pastor, the death of a child has to be one of the greatest agonies possible in life because it's a, a burying of a part of yourself. It's a period before the end of a sentence. It's the death of the future. And it is something that all parents fear, and I, and I say that some in this congregation have experienced repeatedly under God's grace. And I think this, this untimely death that we're talking about of a child really gives you the tone and flavor of which you want to enter this passage uh, Luke begins, and this is uh, reading from verses 11 and 12. 
Soon afterwards, he went to a town called Nain and his disciples, and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. Now, the town of Nain is about uh, 20 miles from Capernaum, and Jesus had been, according to our context, in Capernaum that day. In fact, there had been a healing that had, that had taken place in Capernaum. And then he had left Capernaum, and a great crowd of people accompanied him on about a 20-mile walk into Nain. And so it was late afternoon. You have to see that uh, maybe the sun is beginning to wester. And uh, as he approaches the city, a funeral bier, that is an open coffin with the body lying in it of a young man is uh, being led by his mother out of town. And there's a great crowd with her. It's at the gate of the city, by the way, just as the same it was in Seraphath. And they are mourning. In fact, <clears throat> the death of the young is said, according to the Talmud, you had to have a paid group of mourners making a lot of noise. And so there were symbols and wailing, regardless of the size of her family. And so the two crowds met, the crowd with Jesus, the crowd coming out of town, the woman trudging along before the casket of her son. Especially deafening because uh, Talmud prescribed loud cries for the death of the young. So you get the picture. Sun is setting. All this mourning, all of this sorrow, the woman there. And I think the wretched figure of that woman alone without the company of her deceased husband or any children, communicated in an instance the depth of the tragedy to Jesus and his followers. They saw it. The uh, tear-drenched woman was a widow. The corpse was the corpse of her only son. She was alone without a provider Tomorrow, she would wake up without the sound of her boy, the fall of his footsteps. And so, as you look at this in, in its setting, you see, I think, the, the tragic silhouette of this woman uh, gives us a, a fit figure of people that are hurting without Christ and in need. I think she kind of gives us a universal picture of someone in great need. In all of this, she had no hint, not an inkling of what's going to take place. And the first thing you see is Jesus' heart. It says, when he saw her, he had compassion upon her. In other words, his heart went out to her. The Lord Jesus' heart at this time and in all of life was one of unmitigated 
compassion. Luke uses the strongest word possible to describe that compassion. It's a word that's used to describe the inner parts of our body, our heart, our viscera, and so on. It's, it's the kind of word that's used to uh, talk about something that is visceral that you feel. And this is what happened to Jesus. He felt with her. This is the way Jesus was. It wasn't that Jesus was just like this on this occasion. This was Jesus. He is and was all compassion. You see it in other places. For instance, uh, when Jesus in John 11 was told that Lazarus was dead, the scripture says, John 11:13, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. And the word for deeply moved in spirit is, an, is a classical Greek word which would describe a horse snorting like our, our mare does when I take a carrot out to her. That kind of a sound. Involuntary gasp and shudder from Jesus at the human announcement of Lazarus' death. So Jesus felt it. It was visceral. This is actually Jesus. This is the way he was. And this is the way he is. Uh, there's a couplet that has ranged over the preaching of this text for years, and it's, it's really beautiful. It says, in every pang that rends the heart, the man of sorrows has a part. It's true. In his compassion. And what you need to understand about Jesus is that his compassion is rooted in the fact that he is totally sinless and selfless. Our kind of compassion, that what we feel in this world, is inhibited by uh, our own sin, our own self-centeredness. But no way with Jesus because he is totally self-forgetful in his sympathy and his pity. The whole point, if you stop right here and you think about this going over the centuries, is that Jesus' heart is big enough for our sorrows because his compassion and his empathy is a living thing, a real thing, an ongoing thing. We all have our sorrows, and when you're in the midst of them, uh, they dominate us. Uh, you may have such an intense hurt that you cannot even voice it. You may have that. You may have a trauma that has left you inarticulate. You can't speak about it. And you actually think and you actually feel, even if I expressed it, nobody would understand. Well, he understands completely and sympathetically. And whoever you are, his heart goes out to you. Well, Jesus' heart, his compassion, not only went out when he saw that woman leading the casket of her sons, but so did his words. 
when he says, do not weep. He wasn't saying, look, suppress your tears. It's going to be okay. Chin up. He was uh, discomfited by her tears. And it's actually a gentle imperative, that is, do not go and cry. And he was saying, don't cry because of what I'm going to do. Now, touching a coffin was sure pollution according to Leviticus 19. You can read it twice in there. You, you touch a coffin, you are polluted according to the ceremonial law. And Jesus touched the coffin. He took charge. Then he went up and touched the bier. And those carrying it stood still. You bet they stood still. Because he just polluted himself. And you have to know that at that time there was silence. The wailing stopped. The woman looked on. The crowd. As the sun is setting. Riveting silence because in that moment life and death stood face to face and Jesus standing before the silhouette Jesus standing before death is his life because what happens here is life faced off death the silence is broken by Jesus simple command he said young man I say to you, arise, get up. Now, it's very significant when Jesus performed lesser miracles, he would sometimes enjoin actions that were uh, instructive. But when it came to resurrections, he used only words. In fact, in the text preceding this, in the context preceding this, when he healed the centurion's servant, he didn't say a word. You can read it in verse 7. Where the centurion said, but say the word, my servant will be healed. He didn't even say the word and he was healed. Here he says, arise. When he heals Lazarus, he says, Lazarus, come forth. Just the word. He wants to see that all power rests with him. And then notice this. When he spoke to the boy's corpse, the boy heard him. It was dead, but he was alive somewhere. Because death for all humans is only death of the body, and the human spirit lives on. And his human spirit was alive. As every deceased human must, the young man heard the voice of Christ and obeyed. Tells us in verse 15, the dead man sat up and began to talk. And Jesus gave him back to his father. If you step back from this, you've got this cold gray face of the young man in the coffin, kind of clay-like. His eyelids open his pupils that are fixed and dilated twitch. 
He's looking at the fading sky above. He blinks and he sits up in his coffin and automatically starts talking. You wonder what he said. Mom, I'm hungry. I don't know. Doesn't say what he said, but he began immediately the talk. And the crowd fell back. And as there would be in a large crowd, some began to shriek. There's a universal rush of adrenaline. You can imagine goose upon goosebumps upon goosebumps, and here and there, incredulous voices began to praise God. And his mother, probably still in tears, but radiating heavily light as she embraced her son. Now, for all of us, that's the voice of the future. For all of us, he's going to call our names and say, arise. You get some of the words in 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 16 and 17, a passage that we return to time and time again. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command and with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So the voice Jesus' voice that, that raised that, that, that boy who began to talk shall trumpet the depths of the sea. It'll trumpet to the roots of the mountains and into the diffuse and lost molecules of his children and you will hear his voice. I think of Joe Bailey. Well, now, Joe and Mary Lou are with the Lord. Danny, John, Joe Jr., Nathan, with three left. And they're all as old as I am. But you know, one day, all those Baileys will hear their names called. And they'll rise to be with the Lord. Get up, Danny. Get up, Jessica. Get up, Cindy. Well, as heart-stopping as the resurrection was, there was a further revelation of it years before. as was read this morning in a very Jewish context. Over 500 years earlier, the prophet Elijah had gone to another small town, that's Zarephath, had Jesus gone to Nain, and there he met a widow at the gate, it tells us in the text. And the widow had an only son who became ill and died, as happened in Nain. If you pick it up in the middle of the story, then he stretched himself out on the boy three times and cried to the Lord, O oh Lord my God, let this boy's life return to him. 
The Lord heard Elijah's cry and the boy's life returned to him and he lived. Elijah picked up the child and carried him down into the house. He gave him to his mother. The exact words that you find Jesus doing with the widow at Nain and said, look, your son is alive. Then the woman said to Elijah, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is truth. From this we conclude absolutely that Jesus at the Father's direction sovereignly performed a near duplicate miracle of what taken place those hundreds of years before. That language he gave him to his mother is the same word. The language is not only similar but identical and the results are the same. Well there, the woman became convinced that Elijah was a man of God, a prophet, and he spoke God's word. But here, in Jesus' miracle, it says, they were all filled with awe and praise God. A great prophet has appeared among us, and they said, God has come to help his people. Jesus was more than a great prophet. But ascribing such a title to him was the best that the townspeople could do. And so it was a spontaneous confession that the Messianic times had fallen on them. Indeed, you find the same thing prophesied by Jeremiah at the birth of Jesus. Praise the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has redeemed his people. So Jesus had come in Elijah-like power except for one difference. Elijah had stretched himself over the boy's body three times, but Jesus only had to speak the word. That needs to sink in. How awesome Jesus is. George Eliot wrote that if we could be given emotionally sensitive ears, analogous to ears so physically sensitive that we could hear the grass grow, we would hear an emotional roar on the other side of silence so deafening that we would die from hearing it. Because in this world, on the other side of silence, the people we pass by silently, the people we don't see, a massive roar exists. And if you could hear it in all of its intensity, you and I die. Such pain. The burden would kill us. You know, some scream, some whisper, some moan, some inarticulate, but it's there, that roar on the other side of silence. There are grieving souls who grieve not only death, but the loss of a relationship. You may be grieving a loss of a relationship. Unrequited, impossible, gone. 
But Jesus hears that roar. There are people who have been betrayed or so raw that they, they fear they can never trust again. I've had people say it to me, I can never trust again. But Jesus hears it. And he can make you, grace you with trust again, that wonderful vulnerability to trust. There are people that are depressed for whom a positive thought seems like an impossibility. That may be some here this morning. I'm here. But I'm down. An impossible burden for anyone but Jesus because he hears that roar and more he hears the pain of every voice. And as his heart goes out to his children in deep compassion, it goes out to you. Here's the deal. His awesome power, because unlike ourselves, he's unlike us in his awesome infinite passion an awesome power is waiting and all he has to do and all he will do ultimately is say get up and the dead will rise he brings the same power to serve his people mediated by his wisdom and he always does what is best He'll bring mercy and compassion to bear in our lives. He will bring healing. Bring life. They were all filled with awe and praise God. A great prophet has appeared among us and they said, God has come to help his people. He's come to help us, to meet us. All power in the Lord Jesus Christ, the victor over sin and death, our intercessor, a high priest who can always be touched with our feelings and infirmities because he was tempted in all ways like as we, yet without sin. A Christ who weeps and cares and compassionate. And I don't know who's here this morning really can't see much out there but you may be the person this morning who needs his touch and turn to Jesus and if you turn to him and ask him he'll meet you give you healing peace wholeness hope and joy pray. Our Father, we pray that you take your words and suit it to our hearts this morning, every one of us. Whatever our age, whatever our experience, whatever our biblical knowledge, wherever we come from, whatever our background, and meet us through your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.